Hello everyone, it's October 25th, 2022, so EVAs are back in full swing aboard the ISS. The water leakage problem is being mitigated, so that's something. Then we talked to Joel Surcell, CEO of TransAstra, a company that aims to do cool stuff with sunlight, water, and asteroids. It's a huge show, so let's do it, and lift off! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 382 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right, what do we have at the top of the show? Yeah, I didn't think about it, but also, like, we're doing the the interview so we can just <laughs> we can go into cruise mode we have an interview coming up and we're recording it after we record this section so we have to be quick about it so maybe we should just move on to the news um <laughs> it's scheduled for a few hours from now and uh before editing that's about how long the main segment of the show takes <laughs> which i guess gives listeners an idea of how much we cut out yeah a lot <laughs> how much we cut out but also how much the folks in the discord put up with <laughs> The ISS EVAs have resumed. Back in March, there was another suit leak, and this was, I guess, what, like eight years after the one that happened to Luca Parmitano? Yeah, because Parmitano was, what, 2014? I think so. I've already forgotten, but that sounds about right. The only reason I say 2014 is because when I was doing research for this news article, all of those articles and documents kept popping up, and I, I think... 2014 is what I saw. <laughs> I don't store this stuff in my head. I'm really bad with years. And it's worth noting, too, that in 2016, Tim Copra also got a water leak in the same mm -hmm. suit. Now, is this the same suit? I don't think it is, right? That one was uh, brought back down, inspected, right, and fixed. And I believe you're correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe, uh, or certain parts of it, because, you know, they have interchangeable pieces, right? So I guess, mm -hmm. yeah. but the part that we're talking about, I guess. Yeah, the life support system, I know, is one kind of... You know, list of serial numbers, and, mm -hmm. they, and unfortunately, they, that's one of the things they try not to touch on orbit. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, want to send that one back to the manufacturer. Unfortunately, a uh, uh, good old Jonathan McDowell, who is the ultimate when it comes to uh, lists of things, right? One, <laughs> but it, it, it dates to 2006. But it only it so it has all the serial number and information of all the different parts that anyone who ever did an EVA. Um, an American EVA, or I guess ESA EVA as well, all, all the different parts. But yeah, portable life support system, that's the one thing. And I guess that was yeah, the PLSS, that was what ultimately is responsible for potentially dumping water into your helmet, right? Yeah, I mean, in, in all three cases that we just mentioned, yeah, it's a plus. But that's no surprise. Like, that's the part with water and air in mm. one one unit. So I believe Maurer has only ever done one EVA, so this this would have been his first. And uh, the, you know, this was one of the long EVAs. This wasn't a six-hour EVA. They were almost up to seven hours um, by the time that Maurer uh, noticed some water in his helmet, and it it wasn't the same amount of water. It wasn't in the same location. Like this was not life-threatening. Um, but it's, you know, it's still worrying. So the water was up in his visor, um, and it was like a thin, uh, a thin puddle or a thin film. Uh, it was about 20 to 25 centimeters in diameter. And I mean, that, that's, you know, that's reasonably big if it's near your face, but it's not a, not a whole lot of water. Um, so again, this, this wasn't an, like an immediate threat. So they weren't rushing too bad, but they did, um, set aside some secondary tasks, including uh, retorquing uh, some of the electronics boxes on P4 
um, and doing like cable routing to those electronic boxes. Um, and so what they did was they went back in, they expedited getting Maurer's helmet off, but it, it wasn't like they were, they were moving too quickly here or, mm -hmm. or were, you know, too panicked. Um, the, the difference being, uh, for, uh, Parmitano's helmet leak, it was in the back of his head, right? So it, it was creeping up through not his hair cause he doesn't have hair, but creeping up <laughs> through his, um, um, the the hood, the, the under helmet garment, mm. uh, with, uh, with the microphone and everything and beginning to crawl down his forehead. Um, so like totally different situation. It's still worrying. And so what they did was they, um, they said, okay, we're a no go on EVAs. This again, this was back in March. Um, and they said, let's, let's not do any EVAs until we figure this out. It's not a big deal. Um, the next EVA that, that was planned was originally, uh, there were two in August, two in November, and obviously we're, we're past August, but that's more due to uh, the, the delay here is mostly on the commercial resupply schedule. These two pairs of spacewalks are to install the new IROSAs, uh, the ISS roll up solar arrays or roll, roll out solar arrays. Those have not arrived to ISS yet. They won't arrive until CRS 26, along with uh, Orcasat, which uh, we're a big fan of. So this wasn't a huge impact to the schedule, but it's still enough of an issue that they're saying we're not going to do any EVAs until they figured it out. The, the news here is that they figured it out and they're ready to go. So on orbit, to figure this out, on orbit, they actually disassembled as much of the EMU as they could, and they did some on-orbit inspections, and then it actually got returned to the ground on a cargo dragon. I didn't realize this. Um, and they, you know, did all the additional work on it that they wanted to do. Interestingly, there were no contaminants in the water. And that really starts to tell you this is not the same issue as Parmitano's leak. Uh, if you remember, Parmitano's leak was basically just down to hard water deposits. Um, and so none of that's in the water here. Um, NASA actually placed the blame on what they call integrated system performance. And this is highly integrated. This is the EMU all put together with a person inside of it. That's about as integrated as it gets. And so integrated system performance basically means the exertion, uh, that, uh, Matthias was, uh, under the cooling settings that he had set on the suit and like every other factor um, that affects what's inside the suit led to excess humidity and therefore excess condensation and the condensed water got blown into the helmet um, and splatted on the, uh, on, on the visor. So really not a big deal. Uh, there's not a lot we can do about it either. NASA's press release does say that they, uh, are implementing new mitigation hardware. And I wasn't able to figure out what that hardware was, but I do know um, that they sent up additional ab absorbent pads to go uh, in the back of the helmet. Uh, they they sent up, I think, like four of them uh, since this EVA happened in March. And they've got, I think, nine more on the manifest coming up, eight, eight or nine, something like that. Maybe that is what they mean by the new mitigation hardware. It's hardware that's not yet been shipped up. So it's new, but I, I, I really don't know what exactly is entailed by that statement. Um, mm -hmm. but they're also doing, they're, they're reworking some of the, 
uh, allowed parameters. I'm assuming, you know, basically if you need to set your dial to full cold uh, while you're on EVA, let us know. We'll remind you to turn it back down in a half hour or, you know, something like that. So right now, these EMUs are planned to be used until 2028. I, I think they're probably going to be okay until 2028. They're going to take more and more maintenance and they're going to cause more and more concern, but I don't think they're going to uh, be unusable uh, before their planned retirement date. But because we keep seeing the need for maintenance and the number of concerns just going up uh, every year, I think it really, um, it really shows that, yeah, we, we do need new spacesuits. Uh, the EMUs are really cool little spaceships and they're very well designed. Um, and they're really good, uh, at, at being the tools that they need to be, but they are old and there's nothing you can do about it. it it's kind of the same story with the whole ISS. Everything is aging. Uh, and, uh, eventually we're going to need to to do really drastic refurbishment or full-on replacement. It, the timing is, is really nice because we're looking at building new EMUs uh, for the Apollo missions, uh, and it'll be cool to get a new generation of uh, spacesuits. What did I say? You said the Apollo. <laughs> yes, Artemis. <laughs> and it, it'll be cool to see if the suits that go to ISS are exact copies or just like, you know, close cousins. Uh, of the moon suits yeah i guess yeah the timing is good because you one thing when you're talking about 2028 and thinking about 2030 and the iss eventually being no more is uh, at some point i guess tough decisions about is is it worth to do x if we're going to retire the iss in such and such number of years those decisions will have to be made at some point and i'm sure to some extent already are being made but at least these spacesuits we need them anyway for, for gateway, the orbital versions. I don't know. I, uh, when I first heard this, I, I kind of, I guess the new mitigation hardware makes me more comfortable, yeah. but, but I, I, I kind of didn't like the idea that it was like, oh, I mean, if you just tweak the settings a certain way and you breathe too much, then water will accumulate in your helmet, you know, as opposed to it being a valve yeah. or something that needs to be replaced, which I was a little scary, but I guess so long as the hardware reduces it, because I don't, because that was the whole thing with Parmitano, right? That we normalize water in the helmet <laughs> and that wasn't a yeah. good thing really to do. And so if it's like with all these new procedures, it's like, yeah, okay, don't worry. You're going to get maybe a couple centimeter puddles forming on your visors or in the back of your head. And it's like, well, no, I don't, there shouldn't be any water accumulating. So I, I'm wondering if like you have here in the notes that the new mitigation hardware is just things like these little pads that can absorb water and nothing more than that. Like, is it because it would be too cost prohibitive to, you know, replace specific parts. Like, I mean, it's condensation. What are you going to do? Yeah. But I'm saying what's causing it. Like, you know, like, cause I don't know, I, I guess I'm just kind of, I'm just trying to see their logic. Like, you know, it's very old hardware. So we'll just, you know, try to mitigate the problem as opposed to maybe replacing specific parts that they know might be more responsible than others, which maybe is what they're doing. But cause you know, we don't know what hardware we're talking about here. Yeah. I don't know. And, 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 you know, having said that we don't know what hardware uh, is that issue? My impression, or my, like my my instinct, is that this is just an inherent issue whenever you're cooling air, right? Like every single uh, uh, window AC unit in the U.S., you know, hanging out of a window, every single one 
drips water during the summer because of physics, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with with those window AC units, you can um, build nice channels that keep it from splashing straight down the sidewalk and instead, you know, let it run down the side of the building or something. But like, that's kind of what we're looking at here. If, If there's air being cooled and you've got an astronaut that's sweating a lot, it's a feature, not a bug that that uh, humidity is being pulled out of the air. That That's an intended uh, feature to better manage unexpected levels of condensation. I don't, I don't think there's a single part that you can point to that's at fault. I think it's the entire system just wasn't built to handle that amount of moisture. You know, you, you basically need to, to start from scratch um, at least within the Pliss, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, changes that would actually need to happen to respec it for for more dehumidifying power. Yeah, I, I thought you were going where like that's just going to be a fact of life for any spacesuits, but of course, right, the Orlons right. don't seem to have this problem. But I I I, I think you that makes total sense that it does require a whole rework, yeah. and that's what these next generation spacesuits are for. And and like it it sucks, but like it it's part of the it's part of the physics like. They just, they didn't expect somebody to be that sweaty, I guess. Like, I don't know if, if Maurer is a particularly sweaty person, <laughs> but maybe he was pushing himself harder than a lot of people would. And, you know, I guess the conclusion then is that it's not so much the hardware is getting old. It's, it's that it's just not up to the challenge of, you know, a very sweaty astronaut. Cause I mean, I'm just kind of surprised that we haven't seen this happen before. I mean, we have, but it was for different no, reasons. I agree so, with you. Yeah. so like, why is it happening now? Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know if this is the first time that this exact, uh, not failure mode, but this exact issue has come up before. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe it just wasn't noticed. Like, you know, somebody pointed it out before, um, Parmitano's uh helmet leak mm-hmm. and like maybe uh you know maybe it's happened in the past has been pointed out and it's just been like yeah that's condensation what are you going to do and it's only now that it's you know newsworthy because we're um jumping at, at every drop inside somebody's helmet because we don't want mm, yeah. a bad thing to happen but yeah I, I agree with you i i have no idea the answer to that question i'd speculate that there's there's going to be some degree of randomness i mean to bring in something yeah tragic right uh ice falling off of the external tank and hitting yeah. the orbiter right how come every mission wasn't a challenger because they happened to have the specific details of how that mission went how that launch went where they got away with it and this one turned out to be i guess somebody who worked a little harder uh exerting themselves right rookie spacewalk and also the cooling settings were not tuned possibly other people that were exerting themselves as hard as matthias had different cooling settings on that didn't result in the excess humidity. Yeah. And like, you know, the beta angle could be involved like, Oh, people have worked this hard and had the cooling set that low, but in the past they weren't out in the sun as much, you know, like Mm -hmm. integrated system performance is just an insane, an insanely uh, unspecific uh, fault causation mechanism. A useful catch all for what happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I, I guess kind of like you were alluding to is just that we're more attentive or we notice it more. It's not a confirmation bias, I guess. What's the other term for like when you're overly sensitive to something that you weren't before? I guess that's a confirmation bias. I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm sure there's a term for it, but we're just, you know, taking note now in a way that we didn't before. And that's yeah. kind of like with the shuttle. There had always been foam that was falling on the shuttle. We just didn't, I mean, and we noticed, but we didn't like really pay attention until, you know, it brought down a shuttle. And, and then after that, you know, it's something that you like you very much pay attention to. But so maybe now we're just uh, looking at water and helmets a lot more closely and not just kind of like waving it off because it didn't happen to be an issue on that particular day. Which, by the way, I really had just talked about Challenger when it came to foam falling off, which obviously is not the right one. It was oh, out. OK. Yeah, yeah. Later. I didn't catch that. <laughs> <Yeah, no. laughs> if anyone heard that and was cringing. No, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. Happy to see some uh, some NASA, some ESA, and some JAXA astronauts do some spacewalks again. That'll yeah. Be fun. <laughs> All right. So let's do four short and sweets this week. A lot of them this time. Uh, Dennis, what is he first? Geotail in Jeopardy. NASA's Geotail, a spacecraft that has been observing Earth's magnetic field for 30 years, suffered a failure of its only functional data recorder. JAXA, who are partners in the mission, first spotted the problem on June 28th. Scientists have been working since then to determine the cause of the failure and what can be done to repair the issue. So far, all attempts to restore the data recorder have failed. Geotail was launched in 1992 with two recorders, but the first failed in 2012 on its 20th anniversary. This year marks Geotail's 30th anniversary. Its original mission lifetime was just four years. Pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, magnetic tape lasting for that long is really incredible. On orbit, yeah. Next, ESA turns to SpaceX. Two ESA missions have been rescheduled for launch aboard Falcon 9. The Euclid astrophysics mission scheduled for launch in 2023 aboard a Soyuz, and the Hera mission slated for 2024 aboard an Ariane 6 have been moved to Falcon 9 to keep their current launch dates. All Soyuz launches from French Guiana have been halted due to Western sanctions, and Ariane 6 will not be ready in time for the 2024 Hera launch due to the delay of its first launch. Other ESA missions may also need to be moved to the new launch providers as a result of the loss of Soyuz and delays in Ariane 6. By the way, that is now scheduled for the fourth quarter of 2023 for its maiden launch. And then next up, Tiangong nears completion. A Long March 5B is being ready for launch from Hainan, China. It will be carrying the third and final module necessary to complete China's Tiangong space station. The module named Meng Tian, or Dreaming of Heaven, will be positioned at the forward port of Tiangong's Tianhe Core Module. Like the previous 110 module, it will then be repositioned, this time to Tianhe's port docking ring. The Shenzhou 14 crew aboard the station will then perform EVAs to assess the Meng Tian module and complete its integration into station. And fourthly, Polaris Dawn mission scheduled for March 2023. Originally aiming for later this year, the private SpaceX mission Polaris Dawn has been pushed back to no earlier than March 2023. Four-person mission will be commanded by Jared Isaacman, who organized and funded the first all-private crewed mission to orbit, Inspiration 4. Polaris Dawn, launching on Falcon 9, will feature the first commercial spacewalk, intended to be done near the mission's 700-kilometer apogee, which is about 75% higher than where the ISS orbits. Retired Air Force pilot Scott Potit and SpaceX lead operations engineers Sarah Gillis and Anna Menon will round out the crew. And today we have with us Joel Sircell, 
Uh, he is the CEO of Transastra. Welcome, Joel. Hey, it's a delight to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Oh, we're excited to talk to you too. Um, so Transastra uh, is, I think that the flashiest thing uh, that people would know Transastra uh, for is you're looking at doing uh, mining and space in the future. Um, but there are a lot of uh, associated technologies that you're working on that I'm more excited to talk to you about it. A, a lot of the time, these these small, uh, you know, relatively small technologies make the big picture of uh, sustainable uh, space travel seem almost boring. Uh, so, it, could you give us like a quick overview of, of what Transastra is and and what you guys are doing today and what what you're hoping to do in the future? Sure, Transastra is a space technology startup. We're still we're we're still a startup company, even though we've we've raised many millions of dollars and and uh, have had millions of dollars of grants and contracts with NASA and now the Space Force starting. We're a vision-driven space technology company with real commercial businesses today. Our vision is a world where humanity is harvesting this, the resources of the solar system for the benefit of humanity and the biosphere, frankly. And everyone in our company is deeply motivated realizing that we are working hard on difficult technologies and commercial systems today that are building the stepping stones to getting to the point where humanity is harvesting resources more from rocks floating in space rather than the surface of the earth that supports the biosphere. So uh, we started several years ago. It was just, uh, just basically me in my living room working, look, looking at what are the technologies that would make it so that humanity could uh, harvest asteroids and lunar resources. Um, and so I kind of made a list of the problems that we had to solve. And I knew that those problems involved solutions that probably had would take too long to solve for private sector or venture. So I started writing some proposals to NASA and initially was mostly collaborating with friends of mine and were professors at different universities. And uh, we were really lucky. We started by winning lots of those proposals. And we were able to take those inventions and start to patent them and reduce them to practice in the laboratory, do experimental demonstrations and engineering demonstrations of how these technologies can work. If you want to be successful at harvesting asteroid resources, there are three or four key things that you have to do. Number one, you have to find the asteroids. Now, people think, and they're right, that we've found the majority of the large asteroids. So, you know, in excess of 90% of all the asteroids bigger than a kilometer in size, you know, so mountain-sized asteroids, have actually been found by astronomers. But the total number of near-Earth asteroids that humanity has found so far is only something in excess of about 30,000. But there are probably a billion near-Earth asteroids. The issue here is that there are vastly more small asteroids than big asteroids. So I'm talking rocks floating in space, you know, boulder-sized rocks, you know, from 5 to 10 meters in diameter. And uh, we, we calculate that there are probably a billion of those. And, uh, you know, we've only, humanity has only found a few tens of thousands of them. So call it 0.003% of all the asteroids. And, the, and the, the other issue is that the asteroids are spread all over the solar system and are mostly very hard to get to. But we've calculated using the best scientific models that there are, there should be about 5,000 small house-sized asteroids that are actually easier to get to in terms of rocket propellant consumption. The, the technical term is delta V. Easier to get to and from than the surface of the moon. 
but humanity has only found less than 20 of them. So, but if you could find thousands of them, and, and there are thousands of them, then that would usher in a gold rush to space. So we invented a type of telescope called the Sutter Space Telescope for doing exactly that. It's really, really good and really, really cost-effective at finding small, dark asteroids that, that, that are difficult to detect. What's cool about the Sutter Telescope is not only that it will find all those eventually, but that there are commercial businesses for finding things that are hard to find in space right now, like orbital debris and lost satellites and just mon monitoring uh, space traffic. And, you know, the Space Force needs to do that. Private sector space businesses building constellations need to do that. NASA needs to do that. So it's a, it's a good business today. And so what's cool is we've been working on the Sutter Telescope for years now. And now we have a few telescopes operating at observatories near Tucson, Arizona and and uh, in the Sierra Mountains at a place called the Sierra Remote Observatory. And we are now finding <clears throat> hundreds of asteroids every night and uh, dozens of spacecraft in deep space that are very difficult to detect with any other method. So it, and then there are three or four other problems that we're working on. So finding things in, in space, you got to be able to do that if you're going to be harvesting them. Um, you've got to get around really well in space. And we think today's rocket engines and electric propulsion systems are, are, have some real issues. So we invented a new kind of rocket propulsion system that we call the omnivore propulsion system. We call it omnivore because it can use virtually anything as propellant. We think that's a huge advantage. It's powered by the sun, concentrated sunlight. Um, we can use water or alcohol or regular rocket propellants, lots of different things in it. And what we think, what we originally invented it to power asteroid mining vehicles for later in the future, but it has a great commercial potential today for orbital logistics, for carrying payloads between orbits in low Earth orbit. And so we're integrating that with our uh, Worker B line of orbit transfer vehicles that we're developing. And then if you're going to be uh, harvesting asteroid resources, you need a way to capture asteroids and process them. So we have patented the optical mining method of asteroid mining, which where we capture asteroids in bags and then use concentrated sunlight to mine the asteroids. And we think it's very exciting because we use concentrated sunlight both to power our propulsion systems and to power our mining process. So no big, heavy, expensive, old-fashioned solar arrays for us. So we've got this suite, you know, this, this tech stack of technologies that will eventually allow us to crack open the trillion-dollar asteroid mining business. But there are commercial businesses for that tech stack in orbit today, like our capture bags for capturing asteroids can be used to clean up orbital debris, which is a really important thing to do today in low Earth orbit. So that's a little bit about Transaster's vision and our tech tech stack and what we're doing. And like, that's such a great roadmap uh, just for us to talk to you. Like each of those topics really uh, are interesting, have many interesting things within them. So let's let's start with finding asteroids. Um, I saw you guys in the space, uh, in, the, in the news recently, um, uh, just because of your partnership with Celestron, you're going to send uh, a RASA, develop a, a space qualified uh, RASA astrograph. That's that's really cool. Why is the RASA format uh, what you want to go with? The RASA format is for the technical people in the audience. RASA is a really fast camera. That doesn't mean it goes fast around a racetrack track. It means it has a really wide field of view, um, so you can you can see large swaths of space with it at a time. 
That's one of the reasons we like it. Um, another reason we like it is it's super affordable. Um, we happen to be using the Raza 11s, which is a sweet little telescope. It's a, it's got an F number of 2.2. Uh, it's 11 inch diameter in the Raza format, which uh, if we had a whiteboard, I could sketch it out for your audience. But it is really well suited for surveying large sections of the sky. And it's very affordable, you know, a few thousand dollars. And with our technology, we can integrate a handful of Razas into a single telescope, compound telescope system. And then we can implement our software on it so that with those Raza telescopes, we can see something from the ground the size of a washing machine at lunar distances. And if we put them in space, we could see them something the size of a toaster oven at lunar distances. So it is an awesome survey system. Um, but What's great about Celestron is Celestron is a company that makes very high quality, very affordable telescope systems. So we can take on the ground and integrate a handful, say anywhere from four to eight Razas into a single compound telescope system um, for a fraction of the cost of a big astronomical telescope that would, you know, typically be built, you know, to support the professional astronomy community. And we can outperform that big half meter or even meter class telescope with these little Razas for a fraction of the cost. So it's very powerful. We're building a ground network of survey telescopes using the Celestron Razas as a building point. Now, our technology, the Raza technology is not core to our approach. Our approach is, is in the software domain of how we process the images and everything. But we have to have a good cost-effective telescope to do it. We're working with Celestron both for ground-based telescope systems and space-based. Now, the power of this architecture of telescope is even greater for space-based applications than ground-based applications. If you were to buy an 11-inch telescope for space applications that had was it had the ability to cover the field of view of a commercial Raza that you can buy for a few to several thousand dollars at your local camera store, and you were to buy that space-qualified with all the electronics and everything from a traditional aerospace vendor, it might cost you $20 million. And um, so we're working with Celestron using our space technology to modify these things so that we'll be able to fly them in space for pennies on the dollar relative to that. We think this is going to revolutionize space-based uh, astrophotography, you know, finding moving things in space, what's called space domain awareness, asteroid finding, and many other things. What's this, like, before we talk about your software, what's the state of the industry for this sort of software, for processing images, looking for near-Earth objects? The state of the industry is that there are, there are networks Networks of telescopes all over the world that take images in the night sky on a daily basis and they register those images and they develop what are called tracklets and tracks, which is basically mathematical descriptions of the positions in space over time where they say moving, see moving objects moving relative to the background stars. And um, in terms of finding asteroids, when you find a collection of tracklets that form a track of a moving asteroid, there's a digital standard. Uh, for how, you know, like an industry standard for how you characterize that. And you submit it to a an organization called the, um, the Minor Planet Center. And the Minor Planet Center tracks all these, collects all these tracks, and then uses that to collect, to calculate the ephemeris of the targets and register whether it's a known target that's been found before or a previously undiscovered target. 
If it's a known target, then they take those tracks and they use it to improve or update the ephemeris, you know, the, the orbital elements of that target. So they get they maintain a database of all the small bodies and um, what their orbital elements are. Orbital elements means, you know, where it, seven numbers that describe the position of a moving object in space, its position and velocity. So people from all over the world are submitting tracks and tracklets to the Minor Planet Center every day. We are also. Um, and so that's cool. And then on the space domain awareness side, that is to say finding human-made objects in space, uh, that's a very active growing industry. A uh, really important player in that is the U.S. Space Force and the U.S. government, which is currently in the process of moving that from the control of the DOD and NORAD to the Department of Commerce. And there are marketplaces, there are online marketplaces for sharing that data. One's called the UDL, the Unified Data Library. And government entities and universities and private sector companies can submit tracks of human-made objects that they found in space to the UDL. And the government can uh, make queries for things that they'd like to find or areas of the sky that'd like to search. And uh, there's actually an online economic marketplace for submitting all that stuff. So that, and there are, and there are software standards for all of that. And so we work we work with the Minor Planet Center. We started that early. Our first operational telescope was was a prototype that we fielded in April of 2022. So just a few months ago, we're an agile development shop. So we rapidly upgrade our mechanical designs of our of our systems and our software. So we've gone through three major revisions of our hardware, moved to the Celestron Razas since then, and deployed at two observatories. Um, and so, you know, the way the way people find tracks is basically they take images of this of the deep, the night sky. They use algorithms for finding moving objects. Um, they they uh, reference those to the background stars and they submit that using software standards. Um, there's also an emerging group of people that have been using what are called shift and add methods, uh, or or what what is referred to as track before detect methods. That's, that is, instead of taking a few long exposures, they take a large number of shorter exposures. And then they use mathematical means to find moving objects in the shorter exposures. Um, would you like me to go into some details on how that works? Yeah, that's exactly what I was digging for. Okay. So if you're looking at the night sky with a camera, telescopes or cameras, and you take a long exposure, then what will happen is, initially, or let's say you take a short exposure, you'll just see bright stars, right? But if you want to see faint stars or faint objects, then you take a longer or lo and longer exposure. As you take longer and longer exposures, more photons build up on those pixels in your camera, and you can see fainter and fainter things. This is why, you know, a commercial camera that you're using to snap pictures of your friends, um, if, it's, if the light level is low, the shutter will stay open longer, longer exposure for fainter objects. Um, the problem with finding moving objects, whether it's a spacecraft, orbital debris, or an asteroid, is while you're taking that exposure, the object moves through the frame. And so the, those photons from that object are not winding up on the same pixel. They're winding up first on an adjacent pixel, then another adjacent pixel, another adjacent pixel, and so on. And so if it wasn't bright enough to see from a short exposure, you're not going to see it from a long exposure. So what shift and add methods are, do is instead of taking a long exposure, they take a large number of shorter exposures, and then they guess possible tracks or trajectories that the objects might be taking. And they add up, they, they store all these images in memory, and they add up adjacent pixels, pop, uh, along hypothesized or guessed tracks 
That's called a shift and add method. It's also called track before detect. So in traditional approaches, which most, most astronomers looking for asteroids are still using, it's called track before detect. That's where you, I'm sorry, it's called detect before track. That's where you take, uh, take a bunch of exposures. They're probably long exposures. And then you compare exposures to each other and you look for moving objects. That in what it'll look like is there's a star in one position in picture A, and then it's in an adjacent position in picture B, and still another adjacent picture in picture C. So that depends. And, and that, that star is, a, is an asteroid, meaning a moving star, right? Asteroid means moving star. Um, uh, and so in... Uh, detect before track methods, which have been used for decades. You actually have to be able to see the moving object. It has to be bright enough to show in each one of those exposures. And shift and add methods, which are now becoming more common, uh, the scientific community was initially extremely skeptical about these uh, detect before track or shift and add methods. But they're, it's starting to be accepted now, so that's good. Um, sometimes it's referred to as synthetic tracking. That's a traditional shift and add method. Uh, what you do instead is, is the exposures are short enough that the object stays in a pixel during the exposure, um, but its signal-to-noise ratio is not high enough to see in the adjacent, in each exposure. But what you do is you're, you guess where which pixels it might be in, and you add up those pixels. And there's the way signal processing works in a camera is as you're adding up, as you're adding up the, the signal-to-noise ratio in as you're adding up the, the signal that comes out, signal of any pixel includes both both the signal and the noise. And if you happen to guess right on the trajectory of where a moving object is, and you add up, say, 100 adjacent pixels in the right order, and there was an asteroid moving in that, you'll be able to see that as a higher signal on that pixel. Um, by the way, there's videos that describe how this process works on the TransAstra website. If you go to transastra.com and go to the videos uh, channel on transastra.com, you'll see videos that describe how this process works visually. A little hard to do with just audio. Um, but the reason it's called track before detect is you guess thousands and thousands of tracks and you process the images to detect the images in these tracks. And typically, so if you guess 10,000 tracks, that might be a typical number. If you were taking a stack of, say, 100 five-second images, you would, you'd have to guess about 10,000 tracks. And we'll, we'll typically find five or 10 actual moving bodies in a typical, from one telescope, from yeah, by guessing 10,000 tracks. Um, so you, you, you track first, then, and then for all the tracks where there wasn't anything, you go to add it up, and it just looks like noise. If there was something, you add it up, and the signal grows, because that's the, the nature of how signals work, and then you can detect the, the asteroid or the moving object. So those are that's called synthetic tracking. So when we started working on this with NASA, NASA did not believe that synthetic tracking or shifting, shift and add would work. And so it was a proposal to prove that. In the interim, because of the slow process of NASA grants and that sort of thing, Others have gotten to the point where shift and add or synthetic tracking methods have been pretty much accepted, and people are submitting asteroids using these methods, not as the mainstream approach, but as a good approach. And it's starting to emerge as a meaningful way to do space domain awareness tracking and asteroid tracking. So that's cool. That's progress. But we haven't been standing still. We've invented a breakthrough beyond synthetic tracking that we call optimized match filter tracking. And we have a patent pending in this area, and it's got a whole bunch of innovations. And the reason we've done this is, as you might imagine, if every time you're looking at a section of the night sky, 
you, you, you take a hundred five second images and then you stack them up in memory. And then you have to process 10,000 possible streaks through that, adding up thousands of pixels. It's extremely computationally intensive. And, and in fact, um, it's been done for finding main belt asteroids for a long time. Uh, you know, but there, there are astronomers that have taken data off of large telescopes that's stored in the cloud and run it through supercomputers months after the observations to do this. And they found lots of main belt asteroids using this method. Um, the problem is it's too computationally intensive to run real time. And we want to use it on spacecraft. And for spacecraft, you can't carry supercomputers. So what we've done is we've found ways to optimize uh, the process of what's what people call synthetic tracking or we call match filter tracking to reduce the computational requirements by up to three orders of magnitude so um and we and so we can run while we're while each one of our raza telescopes is backed by a pc with a nice graphics processor unit on it and we can actually run we we, we use a fairly uh, fairly well respected and commonly used focal plane. Right now we happen to be using a focal plane made by Sony, which is about 61 megapixels. And so it requires thousands and thousands of tracks real time while we're taking these images. And we can actually run it real time using our optimized match filter tracking uh, with a single GPU. And we can make the algorithm so efficient that you don't even have to have a, a CPU. So it's a big breakthrough. And what's really cool about that is we're going to be able to put hundreds of Raza telescopes in space. We think we'll be able to, to fit about 100 Raza 11 class telescopes on a single spacecraft that'll fit in a Falcon 9. And we'll be able to put three of those spacecraft on a single Falcon 9 launch. So, um, you know, 327 telescopes. And we and, and our, our algorithm is so efficient that we'll be able to run it. Each one of those telescopes will have its own focal plane and a, its own little microprocessor computer that consumes very little power. And with our optimized match filter tracking, we'll be able to run uh, run the, the algorithm real time. Um, and we call this mission where we fly three Sutter telescopes, each with 109, approximately 109 Raza 11 telescopes in space. We call this Sutter Ultra because we think it's the ultra ultimate uh, asteroid finding mission. And we've calculated that each one of these three spacecraft will be able to find 100 times more asteroids every year than have been found up to now in the history of astronomy. So we think it's extremely powerful and extremely exciting. We're really thrilled about our optimized match filter tracking algorithm that we think is going to fundamentally change the science and technology of finding and tracking thousands and thousands of asteroids and spacecraft and moving targets in space. Sutter Ultra, if you take the same spacecraft and put it in the Earth-Moon system at the Lagrange Earth-Moon Lagrange points, like a really nice combination would be put one Sutter Sutter Ultra at L4, Earth-Moon L4, one at Earth-Moon L5, and one at Earth-Moon L2. If you put three spacecraft like that in cislunar space, they'd be able to track everything down to the size of a toaster oven from medium Earth orbit out to 500,000 kilometers beyond the moon. And so we're, we think that this is a real game changer for humanity's ability to keep track of things in space, find dangerous asteroids that might damage the Earth, and most importantly, find the thousands of low Delta V asteroids that'll be needed to create a trillion dollar asteroid mining industry.
yeah, it's it's a really cool uh, a really cool vision uh, to ha- and and like I, I want to say this and it's going to sound like I'm uh, degrading this the scale of an accomplishment that that would be, but it's not like th- this is actually a doable reality in that the number of NEOs that we've been finding every year it's increasing exponentially, and so. While that is a, a huge discovery rate, it's not absurd. Like it's in line with what humanity has been doing up till now. It's just the question of what was going to be that next, uh, that next increase. Um, so I, I think it's really cool. This is another one of these a- examples where using information systems and software to multiply the power of right. hardware allows you to do vastly more. And it's been terrific that we've found tens of thousands of near-Earth asteroids and most of the big ones that are dangerous for hitting the Earth. But the value of asteroids is in the little ones that are at low delta V. And today's telescope technology can't do it. And um, the Sutter technology, which includes our patent-pending optimized match filter tracking algorithms, and it's a whole bunch of different algorithmic approaches to just make the thing vastly more efficient. Um, It really provides that multiplication in the power of telescopes that allow us to find all these little asteroids. What people don't realize is for every one kilometer size asteroid, there are 500 100 meter Mm -hmm. size asteroids. And and, And by the way, good for NASA for funding the telescope development to find most of those 100 meter class asteroids, because that's the ones that, you know, Congress said, NASA, you should find uh, I find 90% of them. But now NASA has failed in their mandate from Congress. They've only found about, as I understand it, about half of them. But they're doing well on that using the old-fashioned approaches. Um, but um, uh, but to find the rest of those 100-meter class potentially hazardous asteroids, they, they need to jump to something that's more efficient. And I think this can be very, very powerful and help for them. Also using commercial technologies like the RASA technology. We're not the only ones who are using the RASAs for these applications. Other people have realized it's a good idea. We are the only aerospace company with a partnership with Celestron to commercialize this technology for um, space domain awareness and, and for space qualified versions of that technology. But for every 100 meter asteroid, there are 510 meter asteroids. And then let's see, what's 500 times 500? That's a quarter of a million. Of a so million. when you go from when you go from one kilometer asteroids, if I did the arithmetic in my head right just now, to 10 meter asteroids, it's like 250,000 at 10 meter asteroids for every one kilometer asteroids. So space is full of 10 meter class asteroids but it's few and far between on the 100 meter ones. And, mod- and today's telescopes just can't find the five and 10 meter asteroids, but our systems are designed specifically to do that. And by finding them, we think that'll open up, uh, open up the solar system to uh, space resource harvesting. That's a big deal. First, we're gonna harvest water and other volatile materials from these asteroids to turn it into rocket propellant so that, we, that asteroids become refueling stations for spacecraft. When that happens, it'll make it 10 to 100 times less expensive to get around in space. At that point, it becomes so cost-effective to get around in space that it actually makes sense to harvest precious metals from asteroids and bring them back to the Earth. And to harvest engineering materials like radiation, shielding, structural materials, metal, and that sort of thing for building habitats and, and space stations and large orbital platforms out of asteroids in space. So we think this is a game changer for really changing the art of the possible and making it so that, you know, we, we're not just building communication satellites 
expensive space stations and you know camera systems to look at the earth but we're really building big industries in space we think this is really this is a game changer for that that's why we're so excited about it so walking a little bit closer to the present i think you're omni like just in terms of concepts uh asteroid mining is is pretty far in the future from where we stand right now but your omnivore engine i think is is really fascinating and it's also much more immediate in, in, just on a, on a timeline and I don't think I've heard of very many uh, engines that don't care what the reactant mass is. You can run whatever you want through them, and it's gonna it's gonna chew through it and push your spacecraft. So how how does Omnivore work? I wish you really didn't care exact you know at all what the reaction mass is. There are limitations. So the reaction mass uh, has to be a volatile fluid, and it has to be something that you can manage as a liquid at the kind of temperatures that you can manage liquids at on spacecraft, which means it could be cryogenic at liquid oxygen temperatures. So, so the propellants could be, you know, could run on liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, methane, any of those kinds of propellants or um, propellants that can be stored at something like room temperature. So that would include things like water, most of the alcohols like ethyl alcohol or methyl, or it could work on traditional rocket propellants like hydrazine and so on. Or it can work on mixtures of the above. So water ethanol mixtures can be a great solution for the omnivore thruster. What's really cool is eventually when we're mining material from asteroids, the first thing that you get when you, when you uh, heat an asteroid with solar power, you get dirty water full of all kinds of contaminants. The omnivore engine can run on that. And like, like with all our technology, it starts with the future, which is a little further off asteroid mining, but then we, we develop the technology and we use it for today's markets. Just like Sutter is about opening the solar system to asteroid mining, Sutter can be used for space domain awareness, and we're using it that right now every day, finding moving spacecraft in low Earth orbit to help with, or not with not, not low Earth orbit, but deeper orbits to help with space domain awareness. The omnivore propulsion system that we're developing in our lab called the Hive here in Southern California is really great for small sats for moving payloads between orbits in low Earth orbit. So um, it can't work on just any fluid, but can work on virtually any fluid that you would consider as a rocket propellant. By the way, the ultimate rocket propellant for the omnivore thruster is liquid hydrogen. Works great on liquid hydrogen. And you know, people get really excited about LOX hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen rockets, because they can deliver a specific impulse of about 450, 460, maybe 475 seconds in space. That's great. By the way, for the less technical folks in the audience, specific impulse is a measure of the performance of a rocket propellant. It's like it's mileage. But the omnivore engine running on liquid hydrogen, um, we're pretty confident that we can hit 850, 875 seconds specific impulse with it. So it has great legs for that. And for running on things like water, so right now we're getting a specific impulse of about 200 seconds on the omnivore propulsion system in our laboratories using very, very low cost materials. Um, our solar absorbers cost about $35 a disc, and we use a stack of three of these things um, to absorb the concentrated sunlight. Um, and as we go to more expensive materials, as we scale the company, 
it's easy to see that these more expensive materials can handle higher temperatures. And eventually, the omnivore engine will be able to have specific impulses approaching 400 seconds with water. And that's the version that will be able to get specific impulses approaching 900 seconds with liquid hydrogen. So it's, it's, it's got great commercial applications today and outstanding performance prospects as we evolve the technology over time. When you're citing these specific impulses, these numbers are like totally normal for uh, an electric propulsion thruster. But the problem with ion thrusters is that their thrust levels are really low. But I, I'm assuming that um, Omnivore has much higher thrust than we'd expect from like an ion engine. That's exactly right. Back in the 20th century, when I did my PhD at Caltech in electric propulsion, um, people, including myself, thought electric propulsion was the ultimate for getting around in space because specific impulse is high. And back then, Space was the province of governments and multinational corporations where cost and time were not too important. And, um, you know, a typical electric propulsion system, in order to get just one newton of thrust, so a newton is about a quarter pound, so a newton is roughly the weight of an apple, to get a newton of thrust requires several kilowatts, maybe 10 kilowatts of solar arrays. You know, and solar arrays in space are very expensive. So putting together those solar arrays with power processors, which are the boxes that convert the electric power to the use of the electric propulsion system, the thrusters, the, the propellant storage and feed system for the exotic propellants they use, put all that together. And you're talking about $10 million for a traditional aerospace contractor to put together a propulsion system that would deliver just one newton of thrust. So the omnivore propulsion system does away with all that. It's simple, lightweight solar reflector that we can produce for thousands of dollars uh, that can that concentrates the sunlight onto the thruster. The way the thruster works is it's basically a solar-powered teapot. You concentrate the sunlight onto the thruster, get it really hot, run the propellant through the thruster. It boils, it superheats, it squirts it out the back. Now, how we make it so that it can work efficiently on many different propellants, there's some trade secrets there and there's some patents there. And that's actually a pretty sophisticated process. To understand how that works and design the thruster to do that is hard, but then the recurring cost per thruster, you know, is 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 trivia, trivial for prototypes that, that we build in the lab that are pretty sophisticated one-off items. You know, it's a few thousand dollars, and when we when we're, when we're manufacturing these in large number, it'll be ten bucks. So um, it's a very cost-effective system. It puts out about 10 times the thrust of an electric propulsion system, so it's about wow. 10 times faster. And, and we think it's very exciting because it puts out about 10 times the thrust, so it goes 10 times the fa faster at somewhere about around 20% of the cost, so one-fifth the cost. A typical electric propulsion system, if you got the money for an electric propulsion system uh, and you wanted to use it to go, say, from low-Earth orbit to lunar orbit, that it would take about a year. Um, but with Omnivore, with our worker bee orbit transfer vehicles, we're talking weeks to a few months. Um, similarly, a, a, an orbit that's often used in, in business and in commerce is it's called GTO, geostationary transfer orbit. That's an elliptical orbit that's tangent to geo on the high end and, and low Earth orbit on the low end. Getting from GTO to geo for typical commsat with electric propulsion takes about nine months. For the omnivore propulsion system on our worker bees, it's a matter of weeks. So that's that's fast enough that you don't care about all that radiation or the issue with radiation in the uh, Van Allen belts is vastly reduced. Um, and we can pass through the Van Allen belts very quickly. But more important for our commercial clients is the cost of money. But where omnivore and worker bee really shine today in today's market 
is that there are lots of um, new space companies that are planning on building large constellations of very small satellites. And they need to be spread out into a wide variety of inclinations or local time for the ascending node, and to use a little uh, astrodynamics and mission design jargon. But so these constellations need to cover the whole Earth. In, but and they don't want to be in the low Earth orbits that uh, vehicles like the um, Falcon 9 will drop them in. Falcon 9 typically drops you in an orbit at about 550 kilometers. But uh, many of these constellations want to be in higher orbits, like uh, 8, 9, eight 900 kilometers, so that they can see more of the planet. And there's really no good rocket for getting you there and no good way to spread your small sats over all those inclinations. Um, what We can carry several small sats on a single worker bee vehicle, and we can fit up to 25 worker bee vehicles in a single Falcon 9. So if each worker bee carries six small sats, and we fly 25 of them on a Falcon 9, we can deploy 150 satellites into widely varying inclinations and local times of the ascending node, LTANS, to cover the whole Earth, and we can deploy that whole constellation in a matter of weeks. That's a tremendous value proposition for our small sat constellation customers, and they're very excited about it. Now, another asteroid mining technology with commercial applications today is our bag technology. We have inflatable, we have an inflatable capture bag technology that's made out of a thin film material. It's held in the spacecraft in a very small container at launch. And then it, we deploy it and inflates this open bag that's held open by inflatable members. And then we, we developed this technology for the more distant future for capturing asteroids, for asteroid mining. But we can actually, our customers are very interested in this, so they can deploy constellations into these relatively long life low Earth orbits. But then we are the way that they can um, avoid becoming orbital debris at the end of life for their constellation. So we send a worker bee up equipped with our capture bag technology. At that point, we call it a mini bee because it has all the elements it's a miniature version of our full asteroid mining system, but it has a commercial application today in collecting orbital debris that's reached its end of life. And then the mini-bee can actually replenish constellations in low Earth orbit by picking up satellites at their end of life while dropping off replacement satellites on the same mission. There's tremendous commercial application for this. And people are, our customers are very excited about it. And we are too, because we want to help deploy these constellations safely without contributing to orbital debris. We want to be good orbital citizens and be cleaning up as we go along. And this will help us scale the company at moderate levels of just tens of millions or a few hundred million a year um, so that we can grow to be the bigger company and we have all the technologies in place. And then as that all emerges, we will send our bigger worker B3 vehicles, worker B2s and worker B3s, equipped with larger capture bags and asteroid mining equipment to go out and capture asteroids. So we're all about practical engineering execution and real businesses today that help us scale the company to become a mega business in the future. So um, I'm just being like amassing small questions here and there, and I'm not sure where to throw them in here. But um, um, So going back really quickly to the Omnivore, I'm just curious. So um, this uses concentrated sunlight. It does not use like solar power. So I'm assuming that these engines only operate in sunlight, right? Or is there some other means of propulsion like when they're in Earth's shadow? Yeah, this, the Omnivore engine only works in sunlight. By the way, that's true for any solar-powered main propulsion system. Um, and that's, that's a little bit of an operational constraint. But So main propulsion is a term that propulsion engineers use to mean the propulsion system that takes the spacecraft from point A to point B in space. Secondary propulsion is things like station keeping. So for main propulsion, um, omnivore only works in sunlight. It turns out that's not much of a limitation because um, 
in the place that you operate in space that has the least sunlight would be, say, in an equatorial low Earth, or, low Earth orbit, where, where the spacecraft spends a little less than half of its time in shadow. The implication of this for mission design for the Omnibore propulsion system is that in some cases, it roughly doubles the trip time to get from point A to point B because you have to coast when you're in shadow. You have to do some other things to adjust the mission design, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a showstopper or a big problem. It's, it's an engineering challenge that we work through. Um, in other orbits, like certain sun-synchronous orbits, you're basically bathed in sun the majority of the time. It's not a limitation at all. And then also the capture bags, I forget what you call them. Um, we call them capture uh, bags. Okay, capture bags. <laughs> Got it in one. <laughs> Very technical term there. Yeah, so I watched a couple of videos on uh, your YouTube channel, and I remember you saying, at least for asteroid mining, that you have to have these capture bags. And I was just wondering why that is. Like, I guess what's so important about getting that asteroid inside of the bag as opposed to just you know like harnessing it in some other way, or I guess like latching onto it, but perhaps that's just for mining them and not necessarily for, you know, like deorbiting things, which also, I guess it sounds like the best option. Well, I mean, if you were going to make a dumb movie about saving the world from asteroids, you'd send Bruce Willis with a jackhammer um, and, and, and then he could walk around on the surface of an asteroid. But actually, the science fiction concept of landing on an asteroid or walking around on the surface of the asteroid is just completely non sequitur. It makes no sense at all because asteroids... I mean, technically, they have a gravity field, but if you were at an asteroid, you would not be able to sense the gravity. Or the, or the only way you could sense the gravity is, say, if you put yourself in orbit around the asteroid. But orbital velocity is, um, it's like a, a, a very slow softball pitch, okay? So, so it's not a gravity field in the same sense that people who grew up on a planet think about gravity. Um, so you, you can't really land on an asteroid. You know, like OSIRIS-REx recently, went and did this wonderful job collecting, looks like uh, 120 grams or so of material um, from an asteroid. And basically the spacecraft went to, quote, land on the asteroid. And as it got to the surface of the asteroid, it just kept going. And it turns out that what looked like the surface of the asteroid was just dust bunnies. And it just it just sank right into it and it would have disappeared and gotten lost, except they fired their propulsion system to stop. And uh, they thought they, they were going to be, be able to measure the surface cohesion of the asteroid, you know, how much resistance to push it had as they descended onto the surface of the asteroid. Actually, the accelerometers, as I'm told at a science meeting I attended the other day, didn't even measure deceleration. That's how tenuous the surface of that asteroid was. And all asteroids won't be that tenuous. Some will be floating rocks. But in general, the concept of landing on an asteroid just doesn't make any sense any more than you'd say, I landed on the space station. You could dock with the space station, but the reason you can dock with the space station is because it has docking adapters and it's a hard, rigid thing. Typically, if you were to dock with an asteroid and try to grab onto it, anything that you grab onto, the reaction force of grabbing it and pulling would cause it to break off, break off and you'd go floating off into space. Moreover, you'd create a big cloud of debris that would, that would fog your cameras, make it difficult to see, and maybe cover instruments and, and whatnot with dirt and dust. So, um, so the physical structure of asteroids, the best science on it is it's all over the map. Some of them are hard. Some of them are soft. Some of them are dust collections of dust bunnies. Some of them are hard boulders tied together with dust bunnies. That's what the best science says. So if you're going to be asteroid mining, then what you need to do, and by the way, you can't tell what the physical structure of an asteroid is before you get there. You can tell how we, we've determined that with our Sutter telescope, we'll be able to tell how big the asteroid is, what its rotation state is. That's to say, is it tumbling or spinning? And if so, how fast and over on what axis? We'll be able to screen out 
undesirable asteroids. We won't be able to tell exactly what it's made of, but we'll be able to do a taxonomic type that will give us, uh, we'll be able to distinguish between certain distinct taxonomical types, but not others. And from that, we'll be able to screen out asteroids that we don't want to visit or ones that we can't tell if we want to visit. And then with those taxonomic types that we will be able to tell from remote observation, we'll have high confidence that they're high in volatiles, which is the volatiles, things like water, carbon dioxide, methane, that kind of stuff. Um, and also from, from, uh, so from observation, we'll be able to have tox taxonomic type, albedo, size, rotation state, but not surface hardness or physical structure. So our asteroid mining tech has to be equipped to handle the asteroid, sort of whatever its physical structure is when we get there. By the way, these low delta V asteroids have what we call very long, the, the technical term is a long synodic period. That means it takes them a really long time when they come by from to a good orbit to get to, it takes them a really long time to come back to another orbit. That's a good orbit to get to. The synodic period of Mars is two years. You get an opportunity to go to Mars every two years. Jupiter is closer to five, to five years. Oh, these asteroids are like 20 years, these low delta B ones. So you can't send a prospecting mission to go check it out. By the time you get your prospecting mission to check it out, you've lost the optimal trajectory and it's 20 years until it comes around again. So we think that for cost-effective asteroid mining, you got to do it by remote sensing. The good news is we're very confident that we'll be able to do that. When we get to the object, we'll know a lot about it, but not its physical structure. So step one, and, and whatever the physical structure of an asteroid is, they're almost always going to be covered with regolith. That's a dust hazard. So the first thing that you do is you, you open your asteroid capture bag, and then you match the rotation state of the spacecraft to the make rotation state of the asteroid. And you approach along the principal axis of rotation. And if you want to see what that looks like, go watch a clip from the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, <laughs> when Dr. Floyd was flying up to go dock with the space station. You approach along the principal axis of rotation. So there's no relative rotation between the spacecraft and the asteroid. You fly the, the bag, which is open over the asteroid, then you close the bag. Now, the way we close our asteroid bag is with a robotic zipper that we've actually, we're, we're working with the biggest zipper company in the, in the world, YKK. They have a really cool patented robotic zipper technology that we've actually incorporated into our asteroid capture bag. So we close the bag, not through the zipper, but also other means, not all of which we talk about. And then we, we actually, the bag has multiple physical configurations. We change the inflation state of the different struts on the bag, and we can actually close the bag and, and use cables to pull the bag tight and pull all that asteroid mining, that asteroid material to where we want it in the bag. And then we have, and I won't go into the details of it, but we have an optical design of how we introduce sunlight into the bag to, um, to drill holes in the material and, and heat the material up to release the volatile, volatiles, volatile chemicals, mostly water, but other things like the ones I mentioned, methane, CO2, CO, and all our experiments on the ground with both real meteorite material that came from asteroids and with high quality scientifically generated asteroid simulants, we always get all those gases uh, as part of our mining process. So we, we, we drive the volatiles out of the solid material using heat. We have a large orifice in the size of, side, side of the bag, if you will, a hole in the side of the bag that leads to a secondary container, a smaller bag. And then using um, thermal control techniques that are well established in the space industry, that secondary bag is kept very cold. The specific approach for the space geeks in your audience is that the secondary bag, the outer surface of it is a second surface mirror that reflects away sunlight 
but readily sheds infrared radiation. So that secondary bag is very cold. So the molecules of volatile material bounce into that secondary bag and are trapped on the walls of the secondary bag as frost. And over time, we can fill that secondary bag. And a five-meter diameter secondary bag can hold 100 tons of water fairly easily. And so it's basically a, a bag of ice. And then, uh, and then our omnivore propulsion system actually uses the ice that's in that bag as propellant to bring that 100 tons of water back from the asteroid. It seemed like from what I was looking at that there was like, um, in fact, I think that there was some reference to spalling. So there was actually like some of the rock or something that was coming off of that and kind of like sticking to the other surface. Is that right? Or is it just those volatiles? Yeah, that's true. That's a real thing. Um, so part of our patented optical mining method of asteroid mining is that when you hit a rock of the types that we're talking about, with concentrated sunlight, you can actually drill holes in the rock through spallation. Spallation is the process of uh, uh, typically when a heat source hits a brittle material, the thermal shock on the surface of the material fractures the material and causes pieces to fall off. It's not a violent process. Um, in some of our videos, it looks like a violent process. Uh, it's not violent, um, uh, but pieces of material come off. They're partially propelled away from the surface by the release of volatiles. So you have these chemicals that are chemically bound up in the rock. When you heat the rock, those chemicals are released as gas. And as the gas is moving away from the surface, that also causes debris to move away from the surface. And then um, in operation, we actually use a secondary gas flow uh, that deflects the debris away from optical surfaces during this process. Uh, and then, and that's how we keep those optical surfaces clean enough. They don't have to be pristine. Uh, uh, so that this uh, concentrated sunlight can make it to the right spot in the system. You, you answered a couple questions uh, that I had coming into this interview just now. Um, uh, but the yeah, using um, using condensation to pull the volatiles uh, out of your main chamber, I think is probably like the only way you can do this. Do you uh, do you care about um, being able to separate those volatiles out, or are you planning to just chuck them all in the omnivore engine? And, and use them all to get home. Because, I mean, that seems like a nice thing that you can do with the omnivore engine if you want to. It's mostly water. You can't, there are methods that you can use to separate them out. But we think the mixture that actually deposits as frost in the bag is perfectly suitable for running the omnivore engine. And uh, we'll be making some announcement about some demonstrations about that soon. Oh, cool. So you've potentially got a vehicle um, that's got a solar concentrator for uh, for the optical mining uh, rig and then another one for the engine. Is there any chance that you can combine those functions and, and share the solar concentrators between those two systems? That's exactly what we do. So if you come visit our laboratory, you'll see that we have a solar concentrator technology testbed where we have a, um, a large solar concentrator that concentrates sunlight onto a series of mirrors. And included in that series of mirrors is a mirror with a mechanical switch that allows it to move from position A to position B. And when it's in position A, it can deflect that sunlight into the omnivore engine. And when it's in position B, it deflects that sunlight into the optical mining apparatus. So you would never carry two sets of concentrators. You carry one set of large concentrators, and you use them for both propulsion and material processing applications. In the ultimate application, that material processing will be optical mining of asteroids. But much sooner than that, we'll be using this technology, smaller apparatus, to capture orbital debris and we can use that solar concentration, that concentrator to actually melt metals and form aggregates of debris uh, to make ingots for other industrial processes. 
So that's something that's on the roadmap also. That's that's ambitious. That's really cool. I I hope that works out. That's awesome. One of the things that you had said was that um, uh, an an omnivore engine is is cheaper per, you know, in in measure of dollars uh, than electric propulsion. Um, Can you talk about um, its expense to the mass budget compared to uh, electric propulsion and the, you know, large solar arrays that you usually need for that? So let me say this about electric propulsion. Um, Electric propulsion is always going to be with us. It's a great technology. It's really good for, here's what electric propulsion is really good for. If you have a a large, high-powered communication satellite, it has to have a big electric solar array anyway. If so, it generally makes sense to carry an electric propulsion system and use that for main propulsion. That's why SpaceX uses electric propulsion. And I would expect that when we hear details, of it, and I don't know this, this is a speculation, that Amazon's Kuiper constellation will probably also use electric propulsion. Right. And many geostationary communication satellites will continue to use electric propulsion. So, I mean, we think Omnivore is going to be the workhorse of the orbital logistics market. But it's not all things to everyone, and electric propulsion systems still have their place. In, in terms of the mass budget, if you compare the thrust-to-weight ratio, and uh, you know, when investors do due diligence on us, typically they say, we'd like to do, do due diligence. Can we see the technical backup for all these claims? And then we dust off a few hundred um, slides that provide a high-level summary of the details of all these arguments that I'm making. And one of them would give a line-by-line mass breakdown difference between, say, a, um, a Hall effect thruster that uses a noble gas versus uh, an omnivore propulsion system. Or even there are some companies now that are using RF or microwave heating mm-hmm. for electric propulsion. There's even one that uses water. Um, and, you know, that's great. It uses water, but it has no specific impulse benefit over chemical propulsion, except that it's got one-tenth thrust-to-weight ratio of our uh, omnivore propulsion system at probably five to 10 times the cost. Anyway, if you go line by line through the mass breakout and compare an electric propulsion system to the omnivore solar thermal propulsion system, what you find is the thrust to weight ratio net net comes out to be about 10 times less for electric propulsion. And, and I want to be clear, I'm, I'm not trying to make your claim sound ridiculous. Like I, I want to understand the niche that this fills because it's, it's a very cool technology. What we think it's really good for is orbital logistics, when you need to deliver satellites reasonably fast and cost is a significant concern. Now, the issue here is you could use chemical propulsion. Chemical propulsion is very fast. Um, but chemical propulsion has the disadvantage that it's a controlled explosion. So anytime you're working with chemical propellants, you're working with something that is potentially explosive. And that is what drives, that's part of what drives the cost up. The other thing about chemical propulsion is that many of these propellants are poisonous mm-hmm. or carcinogenic, carcinogenic or dangerous in other ways. And because, and it's not that the material itself is expensive. It's that once you implement all the safety procedures to be able to work with it safely, it drives the development cost up so much that it's no longer cost effective. It's very cost effective in sort of the world of the 1990s where, uh, you know, spacecraft cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So then, you know, the additional 15 or $20 million that you have to put in place in your, in your high bay, in your clean room, to implement all these safety procedures is no big deal. But um, things are changing in the space business. So, um, you know, take, for example, a typical Starlink satellite, right? It's, it's, a, it's got a hot, large solar array on it, you know, in the kilowatts level. It's got a high-performance propulsion system on it, and probably a Krypton Hall effect thruster. I hear they're going to Argonne for the next generation. 
If you look at the numbers on that, each of those spacecraft is probably costing SpaceX about what a Tesla cost Tesla to make, you know, less than a million dollars or maybe a million or two at most. This is for a significant micro, you know, small sat, kilowatt level, probably the most sophisticated satellite in operation in many ways. If you were to use 20th century techniques to build those satellites, they could easily be $50 million a copy. Um, and so as, you're, as we're thinking about the economics of even low Earth orbit in the 2020s, these approaches that were fine in the 20th century using toxic propellants, they become not fine anymore. And, you, you know, and so the difference between using a propellant like water or you know, a water ethanol mixture, which is you know, basically like an alcoholic beverage, um, uh, it makes a big difference. And so you really have to think differently about these problems. And that's, that's really one of the reasons why we think Omnivore is such an awesome, commercially viable system in today's world. It would have been uninteresting in the 1990s because people would say, I don't care about saving the money associated with all those ex expensive safety procedures. I, you know, I'll just get hazmat suits and put, in, put alarms in the building and be ready to... Um, to, you know, and put all those all those factors in place. But in today's world, it's just not an option. So we have approached the end of the interview for our penultimate question. Uh, where would you like to be found on the internet? I would say your listeners should go to transastrid.com, www.transastrid.com. You'll see dozens of videos that describe our tech, presentations I've given about our business model and our view about the future. A lot of people really like that. Um, we're also active on LinkedIn. Just go to your go to LinkedIn and search for TransAstra Corporation or on Twitter. And uh, you can also look me up on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Awesome. And and TransAstra, what, what's the full name of the company? Because I, I looked it up and it was a really good name. So TransAstra is short for the TransAstronautica Corporation. There we go. So across... <laughs> the stars. I, I, I really like that. All right. So our final question uh, is less of a question and more of a game show. It's called overrated or underrated. Uh, so I'm going to give you a quick fire list of products or concepts. Um, and I want you to tell us if the world, not, not yourself, but tell us if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or in rare instances, the correct value. Uh, okay. Are you ready to play? Yep. Okay. Uh, first up, heliostat power plants. Overrated. Next, the Langstroth beehive. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. Super important for humanity. And bees are the best. I, I agree. And I love all of the bee language and nomenclature. Um, nice. All right. Overrated or underrated cloudy days? They're rated about right. <laughs> uh, overrated or underrated uh, the B612 Foundation? I'm going to punt on that one. <laughs> that is perfectly acceptable. Uh, not trying to get you in trouble here. Um, overrated or underrated uh, sub $100 telescopes? Overrated. Unfortunately, a lot of the sub $100 telescope, dollar telescopes, you can't see much, and it's frustrating for the kids who use them. And Celestron makes a bunch of really great telescopes that are a little bit pricier than that, and they're the ones you want to get for your kid if you can. I'm totally down with that. All right, Joel, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to us. Thank you so much. It was fun. So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have six winners, one that does not get the bonus points, which is BP, and the rest of them do. Uh, and those winners are Uncle Willie, Deathkin, Valentin Frank, Nathaniel P., and the Greek. And the clue was Swan Song. 
So this clue turned out to maybe have two particular uh, good guesses. So Dennis, do you want to explain to us what that other guess might be, and of course what the correct guess is? is correct. Well. Yeah, yeah. So, so swan song, right? This uh, allegedly, you know, this this folktale that swans would sing beautifully before they die. Um, I got to give a shout out to Henry who pointed out the other clue, which is something that happened just a couple of days after I think uh, the the one that I actually went with, which is the uh, the spaceship two tragedy where um, uh, Michael Owlsbury, uh, you know, was killed and Peter Siebold was seriously injured when the uh, Spaceship Two uh, basically disintegrated um, after a, uh, an issue uh, when it was being launched with the feathering system being deployed at the wrong time. And so I uh, just wanted to kind of, you know, point out that that uh, unfortunate event had happened um, also eight years ago uh, in this week in spaceflight history and that um, medium.com has a wonderful write-up that we'll have uh, linked in the notes, which uh, talks about it in great detail, shows pictures, and kind of is everything you would ever really want to know to be able to uh, see that. So I just want to you know, honor those two and uh, point out also to Henry, who you know guessed that, which would have been a good guess and totally consistent with it. But mine was a, I guess, more light uh, or didn't involve you know human tragedy, at least no lives lost or serious injuries. And that was on October 28th, 2014. And it was the brief launch of the Cygnus Orb 3 mission. And so Cygnus is the swan. And you can kind of tell then with a swan song that something was not going to go well with this. And I'm sure you're all thinking right now, like, ah, right, that was that super duper explosion, wasn't it? <laughs> So um, just instead of just immediately talking about the explosion, I wanted to give some background. And so the way these Antares, um, this particular launch, involved a pair of AJ-26 engines. And these are interesting because these were rebranded, modified NK-33 engines, which were intended for the Soviet N-1 rockets' eighth and ninth launches. So, right, this was the Saturn V's or you know, the Soviet the kind of competitor of the Saturn V in terms of getting uh, crew to the moon. It rather than going with a few huge engines, it went with thirty uh, some of these uh, smaller ones that were still super powerful. These uh, NK engines, NK thirty threes, and other numbers as well. Uh, but of course, all what was it three or four of them ended in failure. Um, it was just very tough to do at that time. These NK thirty threes actually currently fly on a Soyuz. 21V, which we didn't catch uh, as an upcoming spaceflight event, but it launched just uh, recently. And this is the Soyuz that doesn't have uh, strap-on boosters. And so I just want to point out that it, weird Soyuz uses one of these NK-33s. Um, but this really fascinating history that I learned from a, a, a Tim Dodd, Everyday Astronaut video, when he was talking about all the different Soviet engines uh, that existed just did a Herculean task mapping out all the relationships between them. So if you haven't seen that, definitely go check it out. But there's a cool story that ties into Antares and uh, I guess ultimately the Cygnus Orb 3 mission is that uh, Valentin Glushko, right? The big head uh, rocket guy. After the N1 failures, he said, okay, get rid of these uh, NK-33s. We, you know, we're, we're, we're shifting gear. We're moving to different engines. And the person who developed those, uh, Nikolai Kunetsov, uh, mercifully <laughs> ignored his orders and snuck away 80 completed uh, NK-33 engines to a warehouse, where they then sat collecting dust for three decades until the USSR fell. And at that point, things were opened up. And when Americans saw them, they were like, this 
design is incredible that you're able to do this. I'll talk a little more about the details of the engine when I talk about the, the, the mission, but uh, the Orb 3 mission. But yeah, ultimately Aerojet uh, bought them, uh, refurbished them, and made them their first uh, stage of their first Antares rockets. So it, it, it occurs to me that like during the last years of the USSR, their, uh, like their currency and their economy as a whole was just in the absolute toilet. And there are so many stories of people um, hoarding materials to use in lieu of currency to, to barter with. Mm. Um, like I think it was on uh, NPR's Planet Money they talked uh, to a guy who I think he was an American in the USSR at the end. And he, he told this story about uh, somebody who had a giant pile of bricks uh, out behind his house. Um, and he uh, had been pulling them out of his brick making factory. Like they were making tons of bricks. They were selling tons of bricks while they were exchanging bricks for other goods and services. Mm. Um, and he was siphoning some of them off and he called them his retirement account. He said, everybody's always going to need bricks. I don't want to hoard shoes or food, like all these things that may or may not hold their value, but I know that bricks always will. So that's my retirement account. Mm. Um, and so I, do you know if, if this was that sort of behavior or was it like, cause I mean, like, 80 rockets, rocket engines squirreled away kind of is more dramatic, <laughs> a little, a little more dramatic than a pile of bricks. Uh, was that, were these squirreled away for personal gain or for personal wealth assurance or were they squirreled away based on their value to humanity? Yeah. So, and I think I'd heard that story about the bricks too. That's a really interesting one. Me too. And I feel like I heard it recently, but I, I don't think it was planet money. So I'm wondering where <laughs> I heard it. Yeah, it sounds yeah. very familiar. No, no, that's, that, that, that's a great question. And I mean, ultimately I don't know the answer for sure, but I think yeah. from what I had known ahead of time, uh, remembering this story about the NK33s is that it was more like I made this amazing or I developed this amazing engine and mm. you are just going to be that wasteful throwing them out. And so I want to, I want to save them. I mean, these basically were his babies and plus it'd be a total waste. I, I'm like that too. If something's perfectly good and you tell me to throw it out, I'm like, well, maybe mm. I won't. And it turned out he wasn't directly reporting to Glushko. He had somebody in between. And so that's why he was able to uh, sneak around there. And mm. so, and the fact that this happened back in, I, this must've been, if not in the late sixties, the early seventies, um, when I think uh, the uh, it wasn't quite uh, at those dire hoarding times, uh, as I understand, and so and I, I appreciate Chubby in the in the chat um, saying that he did it despite the Soviet bureaucracy. He thinks um, because uh, the higher ups there did a lot of stupid things for political reasons, and I mean, right, uh, taking eighty of these perfectly badass engines and just scrapping them. Uh, I mean, right, that's a tragedy, and so I think it was more like trying to avoid that and spiting them <laughs> from what i've heard about the soviet union at that time there was also just a lot of people trying to make money and so they could sell them you know like i mean why scrap something when, like when you can sell it and that was the motivation for at least i remember for the, for like the rd-180s that's why like ula had to use those was because the, the american government didn't want them to fall into the hands of like north korea or something mm. so they were like hey we'll take your engines off your hands mm. so maybe this is something similar i don't know if, if that's something the aerojet was you know instructed to do 
Um, I have no idea about that. I'm just you know speculating, but that's totally possible. Well, I mean, Aerojet, uh, I, I, it sounds like they just looked like really good engines <laughs> for while, yeah. later down. Aerojet wanted them, but yeah, because because I, I mean that is the interesting thing. Because if what what makes me think that he wouldn't have done something like scrolling this away for his personal gain is that if, if he really did want to profit off of this, then probably scrapping it and just selling that scrap to whoever wanted it would be the way to to make money rather than hey, do you want to? Yeah. Very complex, uh, uh, oxygen-rich stage combustion engine. <laughs> you know, I mean, that you won't be able to put on to the use black market. Being noticed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That there's much more of a black market for. <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, but I'm just thinking of you know, like I'm just thinking of all the oligarchs that were able to do that. I don't know how. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it seems like how do you shift something like that? Like that? But mm. I mean, if you have the connections, then maybe you could. Because I imagine they would be worth a lot of money, and you know, they were because they found a buyer. But um. Yeah, it's just a matter of being able to line that up. Yeah, I mean, who can say? Well, one way or another, hats off to him for <laughs> for saving them because that wound up being really cool in the sense that uh, Aerojet got them, uh, upgraded them with the gimbal blocks, new wiring harnesses and circuitry, uh, some electromechanical valve actuators and new instrumentation, and believe that they saved uh, about half a billion dollars in development costs by being able to grab wow. these. Uh, and so, Not um, bad. Yeah, not bad. And uh, so that comprised the uh, the 100th series of the Antares rockets. And so it was a pair of these uh, AJ-26-62s, um, where that dash 62 is depending on how many of the upgrades you had. You might have had an AJ-26 dash, another pair of numbers. Um, and then, uh, of course, Antares uh, didn't stop there. They then had a, a 200 series, which I'll I have to mention at the end, where instead of the AJ-26s, they had a pair of RD-181s. So another Eastern European uh, engine, right? Because these, these, I believe, uh, are actually uh, made in Ukraine. And now they are not yet, but they will now have the 300 series, ultimately, which is seven Firefly Miranda engines, if you remember that in the news earlier this year. Uh, so that's really cool. And so anyway, let's get to the launch. Uh, we got the background. And so this is uh, after four successful missions of uh, of COTS and CRS, right? Commer not commercial off the shelf in this case. This was the NASA program, uh, Commercial Orbital Transportation Services. And so uh, Orbital Sciences and SpaceX are basically sending crew to the ISS. And so that's great. And so uh, those four successful missions, the first in Terry's one was the... Uh, Antares A1 mission, which uh, David, you gave an awesome twist if, uh, on episode 325 with the clue Virginia is for lovers of space. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is such a good clue. Forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, because these launch out of wallops, and so that was that was good. And Virginia is for lovers is the kind of state. I don't know if it's official motto, but they say I it. I think a lot. it might be. Yeah, I can't remember if it's on the license plate, but is it? Because I, I think, I think I asked that same question. Plate. Yeah, yeah. So so Orb three uh, is again. This is October twenty eighth, two thousand fourteen, and the Antares is specifically in the one three zero configuration where you had talked about these, where that one means it's a hundred series. It's got this pair of AJ twenty sixes, which again are the modified NK thirty threes. The three that second digit means that it's got the chunkiest uh, solid that they put on the second stage, a Castor thirty XL. And then the zero rounding it out means that there's no third stage. And so, because this, I guess, was a heavier uh, uh, commercial resupply mission um, than their previous ones, because they were sending up uh, 2,300 kilograms or about 5,000 pounds of cargo. Whereas uh, on previous ones, it was more like 2,000 uh, or more like, uh, sorry, 3,000 pounds of cargo, pretty much. And so quite a 
you know, pretty big jump there. And so uh, also on board, in addition to the ISS supplies, was a, uh, a testbed sat, which was a 3U called uh, RKID-3, which I thought was pretty interesting. This was a, they were basically this company, uh, Planetary Resources, uh, who you might have heard about if you know mm. a lot of asteroid mining stuff. Uh, they wanted to basically mine asteroids. They folded since then and been acquired by somebody else. But this ARCID-3 testbed sat would have been uh, testing the technology for uh, basically putting a telescope on a small spacecraft so you could survey near-Earth asteroids and see whether or not they're worth uh, uh, mining or not. Uh, but there was an actual telescope on this. It was testing all the rest of the uh, uh, what would be need be needed for their um, their satellites. Real quick, that's a uh, that's a a r k y d, not o u r k i d. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a k and a y in there. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm assuming that's Arcid. Um, yeah, I believe you. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure you're pronouncing it correct. But yeah, when you, when you when you hear Arcid, it in my head it does not translate to a word with a y in it. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it does sound like a, a killer whale adjective. Um and then finally yeah there there was another uh small spacecraft a, a CubeSat called the Radiometer Atmospheric CubeSat Experiment or RACE and it was a JPL UT Austin thing that was going to look at the Earth's atmosphere and the water and that and uh do some cool science from there. So anyway, to paint the scene, it's a uh, it's an evening launch, so it's a early evening, six p.m. ish uh, local, and the rocket takes off, and you see you know a nice big fire and smoke around it. That always kind of looks a little stressful at first, but it's heading up, it's going in the right direction. But at a T plus fifteen, boom, there is a failure in the main engine system or MES, and a gigantic explosion, and the launch vehicle falls back to the pad with the range safety officer triggering the flight termination software, right, just before impact. And so this is about as big and intense uh, an explosion as you really ever see, unless you've got uh, uh, protons heading back down. Um, this is this is about as big and scary as it gets. We'll have the video in the show notes if you haven't seen it before, but it's 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 pretty wild and crazy one. And so uh, there was nothing strange during the countdown or anything prior to the failure, um, and the pad, uh, you can see the aftermath, how bad it was, but it wasn't as terrible as it could have been. I think this was, Ben, tell me if I'm wrong, but was this the very first story that we ever covered on the podcast? Because this happened like just mm -hmm. when the podcast was starting. So this might be our first story because I do remember us talking about it. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome uh, orbital mechanics lore right there. And Yeah, which I guess maybe makes this I, – I don't know if this is the first twist if that covers something that we actually already covered in the actual news cycle, but it might be. I don't think it is. Okay. Yeah, probably not because I think there's, there's there's other things that maybe were more recent perhaps. but it's Still uh, making us feel old, I guess. <laughs> So after afterwards, uh, uh, workers from Orbital were sifting through the debris because this was a Tuesday launch and there was going to be some bad weather arriving that weekend. And so they not only wanted to find uh, some bits of the first stage for the uh, uh, forensic analysis of what actually went wrong, but also if there was any surviving cargo um, that they could salvage. Uh, NASA came together uh, or worked with them as well as uh, I think the ISS was involved as well, uh, some people representing it, to form a uh, the NASA Independent Review Team Orb 3 Accident Investigation Report. So an accident investigation board. And and what they found uh, is pretty cool because the explosion, you could talk about it at different levels of what went wrong, right? What went wrong? Uh, the rocket exploded. Why did it explode? Because the first stage engine exploded. Why did the first stage engine explode? Because of the 
uh, turbo pump. And then from there, you can go into even deeper details because most of the time I see they just basically talk about the turbo pump and leave it there. Uh, the engines were uh, identified by uh, you know E1, E2, E3, and so forth. And so, uh, right, with the two engines uh, sitting here, uh, I think I'd mentioned earlier that these uh, AJ26s are Carolox oxygen-rich stage combustion engines, okay? So the turbo pump, just in case anybody, you know, I, I know probably a lot of listeners know this already, but um, being a oxygen-rich stage combustion means that you squirrel away a little bit of the fuel uh, to go and uh, mix with the oxygen, uh, the main oxygen feed, and then that hot oxygen-rich exhaust is what spins the turbo pump to then pump, you know, both propellants through more quickly. And then all of that gets dumped into the combustion chamber with the rest of the fuel that you didn't squirrel away and voila. That's why it's, it's the liquid oxygen turbo pump. And uh, the, the greater package is called the hydraulic balance assembly, assembly or HBA. And so what happens is, right, I mean, this is, a, this is a pump, right? It's got a turbine, it's got impellers, it's got spinning parts that are housed in parts that aren't spinning. And apparently there was a loss of rotor radial positioning. So instead of spinning along the axis it was supposed to, I guess the, the turbine uh, must have been shifted a little bit in a direction that it shouldn't have been. So now it's hitting the stationary parts around it and causing friction, which ignited the oxygen and caused an explosion. And that explosion then damages at that point, the other engine adjacent to it, E16, is still firing away, but the explosion clearly damages that, and all the thrust is lost, and it stops going up anymore and comes back down uh, to the pad. And so, okay, so that the the, the spinning part, <laughs> which <laughs> how good of an engineer I am, I just call it the spinning part, all, all the different stuff that's attached to it. But, but why? Why was it uh, spinning? Or why was it displaced enough to cause this friction and cause all this failure to trickle down and make a very large boom. And so they were able to come up with uh, three credible technical root causes or TRCs. And so TRC one is that, this is pretty cool because I, you know, I think it's easy You can wrap your brain around all of these and we don't know which is the ultimate one. Uh, it could have been that the intricate and sensitive design of the uh, uh, LO2 uh, HBA, this, this whole assembly um, with the turbo pump in it, uh, made it difficult to reliably manage loads. And so it's just that it was basically operating at such a sensitive, with very little bits of failure that it could handle, um, it was susceptible to basically failing in this way. And there had been fires and failures on other things um, uh, related to the, or on other engines um, that they had here. So they kind of knew about this to some extent, but they could have done more acceptance test screening that they said that would have been able to catch this, but it's still tricky because it was kind of a, even though it was more susceptible, you could you know, fire it to what you thought was good enough and be like, okay, well, this engine's totally fine. It looks like the turbo pump and everything's working a-okay. So yeah, it could just be that the way it's designed means you don't have much margin for error and that's what causes it to screw up. Uh, TRC2 could have been FOD, foreign object debris. Uh, they found both titanium and silicon FOD in the E15 that they recovered, the engine with the booming uh, turbo pump. Um, but there was no evidence that it was responsible itself. They just can't say. They knew that FOD was there, but they don't know that FOD was the cause of the failure. And because you can imagine, right, the FOD, I guess, move, having the uh, the spinning part of the assembly uh, shifting off to the side. 
And then uh, TRC3 was actually uh, uh, just straight up user error, maybe, that there was a defect uh, during machining of the bearing bore housing. And so some of the other engines, um, uh, engine E17 had actually failed uh, on their uh, acceptance testing um, because of it. And so it's possible that Right, the bore, uh, the bearings, and all the parts that keep it spinning right um, might not have been manufactured correctly. And so that's kind of the difference between um, the first uh, technical root cause is that um, in that case, you designed it correctly. It's just that your design had such a tight margin of error that it was going to be more sensitive and susceptible to failing than you should have had it. And then uh, this TRC3 was that you straight up designed it incorrectly. Do you know if the, if the, the silica fod was like beach sand? Like, is that post-crash? Prior to the impact on the beach, yeah. Wow, I, wa- I wonder how that got in there. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, titanium I can understand, but silica is... Yeah, thanks for clarifying, because, yeah, the, the astute if, among you listening, if you were as astute as Ben, you might think there's a lot of silica on yeah. a beach. And, and, right. and this, this pad at Wallops is directly adjacent to the beach. In fact, if you look at the image of the pad afterwards, you can see the scorch, scorch marks all over the, the sand. And and that photo will definitely be in the show notes because like it, <laughs> that's a scorch mark. Yeah. So, okay. So you've got these three possible things that are going to blow up thousands of pounds and, you know, a lot of expensive material and goods and people's satellites. Uh, that's going to be challenging to do. So how did Orbital, or at this point had become Orbital ATK, they had already agreed to merge with Alliant and become Orbital ATK at this point, but they didn't complete the merger until February of the next year. Well, they just didn't use these engines anymore. <laughs> Their next flight went uh, with the Antares uh, 200 model. And so those that was a pair of RD-181s that uh, I talked about since then that had been flying on these Antares or that the interiors have been using until recently when they can no longer uh, supply them from Ukraine. And so, but overall, the interiors has had no failure since. Uh, their most recent launch was in February this year. And uh, yeah, uh, again, a really, really cool video to go and check out um, of the boom. <laughs> it's quite impressive. But in any event, that is your swan song and this week in spaceflight history. And I think our very first episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I love it. Um, I think. I ben think. tracked it down. Episode two. That was episode two. Oh, second. Episode okay. two, we talked about them planning uh, to get um, RD-181s uh, on the next variant. Mm, okay. But our first episode was December 11th, and this is October 28th, so it would have been a little okay, bit yeah. old news. Cool. All right. Well, that was an awesome twist if Dennis... Yeah, it was explosive. Yeah, it was ex- <laughs> definitely explosive. Yeah. It took a while to rebuild that pad, as I recall. Like, that was a big event because mm. it just... That was, like, the worst place you want a rocket to explode so close, you know, like, right there on the pad. Yeah. Right. Ne- yeah, next to the... Uh, most expensive part <laughs> yeah. of the yeah. whole process. Yeah. More expensive I, it, than the rocket. Yeah, it was, almost, it was almost two full years later until they flew again. So Yeah. That's a whistle was fire, though. Okay. All right. So next week, the date range we have is the 1st of November through the 7th of November. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? I do. Uh, next week in 2000, the clue is making a new home, then pulling Dennis away from it. All right. Mm. Yeah. And now you know why Dennis had such a reaction when he read it. (laughs) Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We have six launches and one briefing. So, Ben, what is the first launch? (laughs) Right. So first up is uh, Progress MS-21 or 82P if you're NASA. I think we mentioned this one last week, and I, I don't believe it's been delayed. I think we just mentioned it to to give you guys some extra 
uh, planning time. Uh, so right, this is a progress flying on a Soyuz 21A out of Baikonur. Uh, the launch time is uh, currently Wednesday, October 26th at 2420 hours UTC, uh, which right, same same date bug as last time. So 020 hours UTC. <laughs> um, NASA will then have coverage uh, of the launch starting at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time. And then the rendezvous and docking, uh, the coverage will begin at 10.15 p.m. Eastern time. The docking is scheduled, the, do the docking itself is scheduled uh, at 10.49 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, also uh, on Thursday, the, the 27th for us folks on this side of the international dateline, or I guess on this side of midnight. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, and just uh, keep your NASA TV on because at 3 p.m. Eastern time on October 27th, there will be a briefing on scientific results from InSight and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So InSight has been in low power mode since the summer, and they're hoping to eke it out uh, until the end of the year, calendar year. Um, so fingers crossed uh, that you know it'll still be able to squeeze out some science there. Uh, it's been a great mission. And then MRO, of course, is uh, the satellite uh, around Mars that has a giant telescope <laughs> with the high-rise mm -hmm. camera on there. And so the highest resolution, prettiest pictures uh, of Mars uh, from orbit come from that mission. So yeah, again, keep an eye out for that one. That's going to be a fun little briefing. On the next day, on the 28th, we have a Starlink launch. Uh, unsurprisingly, so this is, uh, this is Starlink Group 4-31, or 31. Um, this is another batch of Starlink satellites, and it's launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5 from Vandenberg Space Force Base, uh, from Space Launch Complex 4E, it's, and it's launching at 0100 hours UTC. So, that's actually not that late, I think, right? 25 minus 7 is 18, 6 p.m. for... Okay, yeah. Okay, after that, we have a tentative uh launch uh from launcher one the virgin orbit so this is not actually a t0 this is the beginning of a launch window and the launch window uh was reported by a, a cabinet member who was working on the spaceport at new key so like this is like not coming directly from uh virgin orbit and it's the opening of a launch window uh, not actually a launch opportunity. So, so who knows if this is actually going to happen, uh, this week, but, um, it'll be pretty cool if it does. And if it, if it doesn't happen at the beginning of the window, maybe it'll happen, uh, sometime during the window. But the payload is Amber One, uh, which is a, uh, maritime domain awareness satellite, uh, built by AAC Clyde in Scotland. It's being launched out of Spaceport Cornwall, which will be the first orbital launch from the United Kingdom, even though, uh, you know, it, it's not launching from the ground. It's launching from uh, a, a airplane, almost at a spaceship. <laughs> it's hmm. launching from an airplane. So, you know, a little bit of an asterisk, but like maybe like a quarter of an asterisk there. Uh, the first orbital launch from the UK. Very cool. Um, so the launch window opens Saturday, October 29th. Uh, we will see uh, if if this actually happens. And next up on October 30th, uh, China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CSC, is going to be heaving something really, really cool in the space. The aforementioned Mengtian 
uh, module for the uh, Chinese space station. And so this is the second laboratory module. David's already given you the short and sweet on what's going to happen there. Very cool. Uh, it'll be a Long March 5B, um, which are the ones where that single stage, assisted by some boosters, uh, ends up making it to orbit. And so uh, we all know what ends up happening after that, though. And uh, it'll be launching at a Wenchang Satellite Launch Center in Wenchang of Hainan Province. And it has a window on October 31st from 0600 to 1200 UTC. And then on that same day, we have the launch of a Falcon Heavy. Uh, first time in a long time. Uh, so this will be really cool. And this is a Space Force payload. Uh, it is USSF-44. And it's a classified payload so we don't know what it is um so i can't say but um it's also going to be launching a microsatellite called tetra one i'm not sure what that is either i tried just looking it up it's um based on uh the altair which is uh by millennium space systems it's a so a little small uh, microsatellite but doesn't really say what it does um it's yeah, I don't know. So a little microsatellite and then a classified payload for the Space Force. And that'll be launching from Launch Complex 39A from Kennedy Space Center. And the launch time is at 1344 UTC. So it looks to be an instantaneous launch window uh, going out to GEO. So that'll be really cool. First launch since June 2019. Okay. And then our, our last launch, I, I promise this is the last one. <laughs> it's been uh, been a lot going on this week. Uh, our last launch is JPSS-2, the Joint Polar Satellite System. Um, this is uh, a joint uh, vehicle um, for uh, NOAA and NASA. Um, this is the second of the five uh, JPSS constellation vehicles. Um, you know, it's it's uh, Earth observation uh, science, both on uh, the surface and in the atmosphere. Um, really cool weather from space, not space weather, but weather from space data collection. So JPSS-2 is going to be launching on an Atlas V in the 401 configuration on Tuesday, November 1st at 0925 hours UTC. Um, that's flying out of Vandenberg. So with that, those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. And so with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chubby, Deathkin, Colin, Gopal, Mr. Cesium, Ryan Rigner, Greek, Mike, Zach, and Chris, a.k.a. Sny Garfield, for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. We'll be right back.